7. Luke 19, 11 through 27, and would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him, so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you put my money, excuse me, why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. You may be seated. Thank you, Justin. Well, good morning. Happy New Year to everyone. Good job braving the cold and the weather. Glad you guys are here today. Um, Jacob has invited me to preach for these uh, first three weeks of January, and so I'm delighted to be up here with you guys today. Um, I'm going to pick up right where Jacob left off last week. So um, last week, if you remember, at the end of, end of Jacob's message, he actually had us Um, go through this parable. We read this parable together. And so what I want to do is pick up on the theme of right where he left off. So um, last couple weeks here, what we've been talking about is Jesus, the coming king, right? So Jesus came, um, we celebrate Christmas, besides all the gifts and all the, the wrapping paper and bows and all that stuff, we're celebrating Jesus, right? We're celebrating the one who was born in a manger, Jesus, the one who was born king, who came to save his people from their sins, to to bring atonement through his perfect life and death and resurrection. So that's the first coming of Jesus. And then last week, Jacob spoke about what will be the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus comes again to reign on the throne as king over all nations. 
And we live in this in-between time. So Jesus has come. He is king. He has been declared to be so, but he left for a time, and he's coming again um, to be king. And that is a, that's a fundamental, foundational truth of the Christian life, is that we look forward to his return. That's part of what it means to be a Christian, is that we look forward to the return of Jesus as our Savior. And so we live in this in-between time. So the question is, how should we live our lives in view of this in-between time? How do we, how do we view the way we approach this in-between time? And so to answer that question, um, for these next three weeks, we're going to be looking at really two words, two metaphors for the Christian life that Jesus uses to describe us. Um, they're descriptions that show up not just in Jesus' teaching, but all through the New Testament. And um, they really help us understand this in-between time that we're in. So if you're a Christian, you are a slave and you are a steward. And so we're going to spend these next three weeks looking at those two words. And, and um, Greg mentioned briefly, you know, this is the new year. Um, Dave mentioned it as well. It's the new year. It's a time when a lot of people make goals. Um, look ahead to the new year, and uh, maybe you're the goal setter, maybe you're not, but regardless, um, this is a really natural time for us to just kind of step back and and look at our lives. How are we doing, right? Maybe you reflect back on the previous year, maybe you're looking ahead and setting goals for the new year, Um, but it's, it's a really just natural time to look at your life. And so I think in this parable that we just read, what Jesus is doing is presenting for us a picture of reality. He's saying, this is how it is. And it's interesting, the way he describes it, he says, here's a picture of reality, this is how things are. There is a king, and there are the slaves. He is the king, and we are the slaves. And so that's the description of reality that he wants us to have. If you're a Christian, you are a slave, and you're also a steward. And so... um, what these two words do for us is they kind of put us in our place, right? They remind us of who we are in comparison to the God of the universe. Um, it's, it's all about him. It's, it's not about me. It's not about what are my plans. I, I love that song, um, all of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these to, into your hands, right? It's not about me. It's about him. He's, he's the king. Um, we get the joy of knowing him and participating with him, but it's all about him. I'm a slave. I'm a steward. He's the king. And so that's what we're going to spend these next three weeks on. So this week we're going to talk all about this word slave. And then the next two weeks we'll talk about this word steward. And and really talk through these things. And so today we're going to see three ways that this word slave should shape our understanding of who we are in Christ. Um, Three ways that it should shape our understanding of who we are in Christ. Uh, now, before I get into the details of that, I just want to point out like how prevalent this word is in the New Testament. It's a theme that shows up over and over and over. Um, the New Testament constantly describes us as slaves of Christ. So we, we saw that in this parable that Jesus um, shared, or Jesus spoke to his disciples. Um, so let me just look again here at verses 12 and 13. So Jesus said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves 
and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. So how does Jesus describe this in-between time? How does he let us know how he views things? Well, there's a nobleman, a master, a man who went away, who will return as king, and then there are the slaves, and that's us. Uh, that kind of language of, of us being slaves and there being a king shows up through lots of Jesus' parables. This is a very common theme of, of how Jesus speaks. Um, it also shows up in his teaching, John fifteen twenty. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So again, how does Jesus describe this relationship with his disciples? Well, he uses lots of different metaphors, but in this instance, and quite a few times, he is the master, they are the slaves. So, you know, if I were to get up here this morning and come up with a list of like the top 10 politically incorrect ways to start 2022, I think this would probably hit the list, right? So we're going to talk all morning about it. Good job, Adam. <laughs> we're going to talk about slavery all morning. But so I, what I want to do is I just want to address, like that might feel a little uncomfortable for us. You know, um, it, it's a little outside the norm for where we live and, and what we experience in life. So um, let me just talk about slavery in ancient Rome, because there were some significant differences between slavery way back then and slavery a little more recently, like in colonial America and the British Empire and all that. Um, back then, in ancient Rome, slavery was not about race. So if you're walking down the street, you couldn't pick out, oh, that person's a slave and that person isn't, based on color of their skin or the way they were dressed or anything like that. It was not a racial issue for them. So anybody could be a slave in ancient Rome. Um, Another difference is that Roman slaves had the opportunity to earn their freedom. Not always, but often they had the opportunity to earn their freedom. So it wasn't a life sentence. There there were opportunities that they could pay back a debt, that they could earn their freedom. And many slaves went on to become citizens of the Roman Empire and sometimes even owners of slaves themselves. So there was opportunity to advance their position. Um, Another difference is that a slave of a good master... Um, had the opportunity to be highly educated often. Um, They might carry with them a certain measure of prestige and influence. So there were some differences, but it was still slavery, right? still slavery. Um, It was still often very oppressive and horrible, right? It's a horrible institution. Praise God that slavery does not exist in our setting today. Um. But given that it was such a horrible institution, even back then, with, with those de- distinctions in place, it's so fascinating how frequently the apostles describe themselves as slaves. Right? That would have felt uncomfortable even back then. So, so look at some examples with me, um, because the apostles do this over and over. Romans 1.1 starts with Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We've been going through the book of Romans. How does Paul start off this great treatise on the Christian faith? What is the first thing he's going to say? He's going to define who it is, who he is speaking to them. He doesn't lead off with Paul, an apostle. 
That kind of comes second. He doesn't lead off with Paul, a child of God. He starts off with Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Um, let me just comment on that word bondservant. That's not a... When was the last time you used the word bondservant? <laughs> I don't use that word. I don't think any of us do. Um, the, the English translations struggle a bit with this particular word and how best to translate it. And there's two, two main reasons for this. Um, so the, the first main English translation out there was the King James, of course. And that was back in 1611. And at the time, slavery was not something that the people were very familiar with. It just didn't exist in medieval Europe in that part of the world. And so to use the word slave didn't really fit their understanding. So they needed something that people could relate to. And they had this whole serf thing going on where there were servants tied to the land and they couldn't really easily get out of it. They were stuck with the land. Uh, Whoever their landowner was, they had to serve. And so they said, okay, this word servant... This is probably the closest parallel to what we have today, back then. And so they used the word servant in the King James because it's what related best. Um, More recently, you know, we're several hundred years later, uh, more recently, English translations have shied away from the word slave because of all the baggage it has with, you know, slavery in America, right? And there's, there's people who don't like that word for obvious reasons, And there are those distinctions, you know, it was racially bound and all that stuff. So because of that, many of our English translations have stayed away from the word slave. So they've chosen a different word, like bondservant. So what does bondservant mean? It means slave. (laughs) It's a synonym. It's the same exact word. Um, But they chose to use the word bondservant instead of slave. But you could easily just throw in the word slave there, and it means the same thing. So look at how often this shows up in their language. So Paul starts off Romans. He starts off Philippians. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints. James 1.1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Do you see the theme? (laughs) This shows up over and over. And what they're saying is, we are slaves of Jesus. That's how they chose to define themselves. That's how you're going to start off your letter. I want to write to you. This is a message from the Lord. I am a slave of Jesus Christ coming to present this to you. Um, Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his Bond servants, that's all y'all. The things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So you see what they're saying. So Paul, James, Peter, Jude, John, they're all slaves of Christ Jesus, and, and furthermore, according to Jesus, all of us are too. Right? We are all slaves of Christ Jesus. So What does it mean to be a slave of Christ Jesus? Because apparently this is a really big deal, pretty central to what it means to be a Christian. So um, the first thing is that being a slave of Christ means that we belong to him. So the difference between being a uh, just a servant, the way we would use the word, the difference between being a servant and a slave is that a servant is hired. A slave is owned. 
You see the distinction? And that's how it was back in ancient Rome, how it was in in, um, old America. A slave was owned. So just like you might own a car or a refrigerator or a kitchen table, if you had a slave, you owned that slave. Again, man, this is like as politically incorrect as you can get. But that's how they understood this word. The slave belongs to the master just like any other piece of property. So look at how the New Testament describes this concept. So 1 Corinthians 6. Look at the language here. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Why does God have the right to tell me what to do with my body? Well, because my body belongs to him. I've been bought with a price. He owns me. Right? That's the language. That's, that's what is intended in that language there. Um, look at 1 Corinthians 7. Th- this one's interesting because this is actually co- talking about the context of slavery in that world. Paul says, were you called while a slave? In other words, were you called to faith in Christ while you were a slave? Did you become a Christian while you were a slave? Because the question that was coming up for them is, is, if Jesus has set me free, does that mean then that, I don't, uh, that I'm not a slave anymore? Right? I can just go free. Right? So here's what he says. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. Because there was the option of paying off your debt or finding a way to earn your freedom out of that. But he goes on. He says, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Right? So see what he's doing here. He's saying, you may think you're free, right? You have your freedom. But at, at the foundational level, you are still a slave of Christ. You don't have unbound freedom. You are a slave of Christ, right? And if you are a literal slave, recognize that there is freedom in Christ, that ultimately he is the one who grants you freedom in in that sense. And so um, he goes on, verse 23, to say, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Don't, Don't choose to enter into slavery, but recognize you were bought with a price. That's the language of the slave market, Christ bought me. That's what's being said there. Um, 2 Peter 2.1. Look how Peter describes this. He says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Here's the idea. You're not your own. The master bought you at a considerable expense to himself. You belong to him. You are slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, it's funny. I've never heard the gospel shared this way. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you have. But have you ever heard the gospel shared like this? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So if you trust in Christ, he will save you and make you his slave. I, I've just never heard it shared that way. But that's the reality of it. Um, oftentimes, we... I think we downplay certain aspects of our faith, right? So we, we emphasize 
for good reason. We emphasize we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is true. Praise God. Hallelujah. But we have to be careful not to so emphasize that that we forget other things Jesus said. Like Luke 9.23, where he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Right? So yes, we are saved by grace through faith, but following Christ means dying to yourself. Not maybe the fastest way to make quick converts, right? But it's, it's essential to discipleship, to what it means to follow Christ. Right? There is no category for following Christ that does not involve denying yourself. You must die to yourself to follow Christ because that's, that's what it's all about. That's how he describes it. We are slaves of Christ Jesus. Which leads to the next point. So if Jesus owns me, then he automatically has the right to direct every aspect of my life. So being a slave of Christ means we must obey him. So if you want to turn with me, I want to take a couple minutes here and look at Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul is speaking to Titus, and he's describing uh, really what the Christian life looks like here. So Titus 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. A couple observations here. Uh, Verse 11 starts off with the grace of God. The grace of God has brought the availability of salvation to all people. And man, that's good news. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile or whatever your background is. um, All people have the opportunity to receive the grace of God and be saved. But the grace of God doesn't stop there. Verse 12, the grace of God also instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. I think often it's, it's easy to misunderstand grace, right? I, I think what happens sometimes is we think that grace saves us, as if grace is some impersonal force out there that just does it for us. But it's the grace of God. God is the one who extends grace. God is the one who saves. And God has expectations for us. He, he, you know, he gave us a whole book for how we're supposed to live And so there's instructions that go along with salvation, right? We're supposed to deny worldly desires. And so all that takes place in this present age, as verse 13 says, as we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. So he's pointing to this in-between time again, right? So Jesus came, he's coming again, we live in this in-between time. In this present age, as we look forward with hope to Jesus... Our lives ought to be marked by righteous and godly living. Why? And man, I I don't know how you guys, maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm just weird. But I always want to know the question, why? I'm probably like, I was probably that little kid. My mom's here this morning. I was probably that little kid that asked why too often. Um, 
but man, I always want to know why. What's the motivation behind it? Why should I live in a godly way? Well, notice the language again of slavery, right? Paul tells Christ, Paul tells Titus that Christ redeemed us. And when he says redeemed, he's using that language of the slave market again. We were purchased. We were bought out of slavery from the world. We were bought out of slavery to sin. But not so that we can just go do whatever we want. No, we have a new master, right? We have been released from our old oppressor, but saved to a good master. Um, Paul in Romans 6, we went through this a while back. Um, In Romans 6, Paul gives really kind of two descriptions. There's two categories of all the people in the world. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of God, a slave of righteousness. It's one or the other. It's not like there's a, a third option where you get to just do whatever you want and you are unbound. No, we are all in some sense a slave, slave to sin or slave to righteousness. And so here what, what he's saying is that as slaves of Christ, he has the right to tell us how to live our lives and so we need to submit to him, submit to his plan. There's a really interesting parallel in the Old Testament um, you guys know the stories um, of, of Israel leaving Egypt, God telling Moses to, to bring this message to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses leads the people out, and they, they cross the Red Sea and, and on dry ground, and then God floods the water back in and, and kills the armies of Pharaoh. They, they get off, they, they make it out into the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God meets with Moses and the people. And he tells them that they are his possession. Um, he establishes a covenant with them. He gives them lots of rules and instructions for how they're supposed to live their lives. Right, The whole Old Testament law code is there. In Leviticus 25, verse 55, we have this kind of summary of the whole thing where it says, For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you have this really interesting tension, right? Like they've been brought out of slavery. Yes! But now they are servants of God, right? It's not that they are completely free. Run amok, you can do whatever you want. No, they are now servants of God. So freedom from Egypt means serving God instead. And you see this throughout that true freedom in a biblical sense is not absence of restraint. True freedom in a biblical sense is the, the environment where you can thrive and flourish. And so that's, that's what Christ provides for us is that opportunity. Now, let me just point out something that's probably obvious to all of us, but um, we live in America, land of the free, home of the brave, and we don't like being told what to do. Um, we live in the Pacific Northwest where things like self-expression and, and freedom, you know, that, those are pretty high values. So we don't, we don't really like being told what to do. So again, this probably feels a little uncomfortable and a little awkward, all this language of, of you got to submit your will and you got to do this. So um, I think it's important for us to think then about the third point. Why would someone want to be a slave? And it's not like what's in it for me, but I want you to see the advantage here of being a slave of Christ Jesus. And that's our third point, that being a slave of Christ is the greatest 
possible honor. So why did Paul and James and Peter and Jude and John all refer to themselves as slaves of Christ Jesus? Uh, we, we just went through Christmas season. Um, in the Christmas story, one of the characters that shows up is Simeon. Simeon refers to himself as a slave of the Lord, servant of God. Um, if you go back through the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah, all the Old Testament prophets, they all referred to themselves as servants of God. Why? Well, because it's the greatest possible honor. I'm with Jesus, right? He is my master. And it's that connection, it's that, that status by association. I'm, I'm with him. I'm with this guy. And that's really how Old Testament, or not, I'm sorry, not Old Testament, ancient Roman slavery worked, right? So um, in, in those times, a, a slave of a high-ranking official would have had higher status than a poor citizen, right? Because of who they were associated with. Um, there, there were privilege and provisions that would go along with that. So if you're the slave of Caesar, man, think about the connections that you have, the opportunities you have. Um, you didn't have to worry about where your next meal came from, right? You knew you were going to be taken care of. Um, you had access to things that other people wouldn't. Um, and um, if you happen to have a good master, you're guaranteed a secure and peaceful life. You're going to be taken care of. Now, think about that with our master, who is good, right? Jesus is the best possible master to, to serve, right? And it's, it's not that somehow we'd be better off if we were without him. No. Our greatest security, our greatest hope, our greatest status comes from being with Jesus, and so, as, as we consider this whole thing of slavery, man, it is not like a burden somehow to lead off with this thing about Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. No, he is saying that with pride. This is who I am. I am a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Therefore, I come with his authority. I am a messenger of the king. That's, that's what they're saying when they, when they lead off that way. So, as we look at what this, this language of being a slave means, um, it means at least three things. It means we belong to him. It means that we live our lives completely in submission to him. Uh, it means that we have this incredibly high honor of being slaves of Christ. So, so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to take a couple minutes, and I want to talk through how does this relate to... January 2nd, 2022, in Tri-Cities. Because it feels a little abstract and distant. Is that fair? We're all, all slaves of Christ, but what does that mean today? So I want to just talk through a couple things. Um, one is that we are in the middle of this series through the book of Romans, right? We just finished Romans chapter 12. We made it out of chapter 12. Um, spent quite a while there because uh, Romans 12, if you remember, starts off, um, by describing the entire Christian life as a, as a life of worship. And then it goes on to describe what obedience in the Christian life looks like, and Paul just gives this whole long list of suggestions, right? whole bunch of suggestions of, of things, like be devoted to prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, practice hospitality, all these suggestions that he gives. We're, we're saved by grace, right? So we can kind of live however we want to, 
So these are just suggestions, right? No. These are commands. These are commands of Scripture, right? What Paul is doing there is he's giving commands. This is how you live the Christian life. And I think all too often we come through a passage like Romans 12 and we think, I'm saved by grace, so he's given me some ideas. I guess maybe I could do that if I feel like it. Contribute to the needs of the saints? Eh, maybe. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good? Well, yeah, sometimes I'll do that. Um, give preference to one another in honor. You know, that thing about being devoted to prayer? Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll get around to those things. No. These are commands, all right? This is, this is how we are supposed to live our lives, right? When, when we come to things like that, I think it's really important that we recognize he is king, I am slave. I will do what he says. And if he says this is how I'm supposed to live, okay, I'm all in. Um, I think another implication of, of this is how we view our identity in Christ, um, I think I've, I've personally seen a lot written on our identity in Christ through the, the years. Um, I've heard a lot of people speak on this. But I never hear anybody talk about being a slave as part of their identity in Christ, right? We hear all kinds of things about, I'm a child of God. I'm part of the body of Christ. Um, you know, all, the, all this kind of language. Um, but rarely ever do we hear that kind of thing about who we are in Christ. Um, it is true. I'm a child of God. It is true. I'm part of the body of Christ. It is true. I'm part of this holy nation, this, this new people, right? All of those things are true, but if we completely emphasize all the stuff that God has done for us and, and his relational commitment, and we downplay our part of what it means to be involved in this relationship, I guess it's pretty one-sided, Right? seems like we, we are not understanding who we are in relation to the king. And so it's really important as we think through our identity in Christ, maybe we should lead off with that thing about slave of Christ the way the apostles did and recognize, like, this is core to our identity. This is who I am. Um, otherwise, we're not really giving the full picture. Um, here's another implication of this. Um, I think it should influence the way we obey God. Um, if I were to pull out my checkbook and I were to write my name, sign my name to it and hand it to you, you could fill in any amount you want to and take it to the bank and cash it. Now, it, this is my, che- my checking account, so it may not work, <laughs> but you could try, right? But if, if I were to give you a blank check signed, you could fill that in for whatever you want. Well, I think what God is expecting of us is blank check obedience, right? Fill out the checkbook, hand it over to him. It's all yours, all of it. For some of us, that probably sounds kind of extreme, right? Like, give God everything, all of it? But here's the truth. It already belongs to him, right? It's already his, right? So anything other than blank check obedience is sort of missing the point, right? If we, if we don't give God blank check obedience in our lives... We're just kind of misunderstanding reality. It's already his, right? And he is going to come back one day and take account of how we lived our lives. 
You remember the parable at the beginning. He's the master, and he has some slaves, and he's given us something to do. And he's left, but he's coming back. And he has expectations for what he's going to see when he returns. And so, man, it's all his. We need to live with that understanding. Um, a lot of us, like Dave mentioned, we're, we're setting goals, right? And there's different seasons in life, and we all plan different goals. But it's really important that our goals be built around serving the King of Kings, right? He's the one that gets everything. He's the one who shapes our lives, that determines where we go, what we say, what we do. He is the King of Kings. And so blank check obedience, man, that's, that's really what is expected. Um, one last thing that I have to mention. Um, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of us are weary and heavy laden this morning. <laughs> you stayed up too late. Um, <laughs> but he says, I will give you rest. He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I've been emphasizing intentionally the responsibility aspect of all of this, right? If we are slaves of Christ, we are responsible to serve the king. This is the other side of that. There is complete, amazing freedom in serving the king of kings. Amen? Right? That's where freedom from sin is found. That's where freedom from fear and everything that weighs us down is found, is serving the king of kings. It's the greatest possible freedom to serve Jesus. Uh, man, he's the satisfaction for our deepest longings. Um, we, we sang that song earlier. We're going to sing that song one more time, All for Jesus. And we're going to reflect on this reality of what Christ has, has called us to, right? That song is really an expression of blank check obedience. You guys can come on up here. Um, it's really an expression of this idea of blank check obedience, that we're going to give it all to God. We're going to choose to serve him because we realize that's where true freedom is found, is in serving him. Um, Would you pray with me? Our Father, uh, thank you, Lord, for this good morning. Thank you for this new year, Lord. And as we kind of step back this morning and consider um, who we are in Christ, Lord, help this to be part of our, our understanding part of the equation for us, Lord, that we serve a master. Lord, that Jesus is the King of kings, and we have this great privilege of serving him. Father, may that shape the way we view our lives, Lord. Um, Help us not to be complacent, but help us also not to be misled, Lord. Help us not to have this, this cheap view of grace that says, I can I'm saved, I've got fire insurance, I can do whatever I want to, Lord. Help us to have an accurate picture. You are the king, Lord. You will come again. And when you come again, Lord, you're going to expect that we have been serving you in your absence. Um, Father, may our lives, all of them, every aspect of our lives, may they be honoring to you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.